Welcome to Emil Franzing's Voices of the West, dedicated to the principle that America was better off when our TV shows featured cowboys instead of lawyers. Well, and a good afternoon. <clears throat> Pardon me. Boy, I got ahead of myself there. You had a frog uh, in your throat. Uh, had something down there. Right Welcome, to. <laughs> Welcome to another edition of uh, Emil Franzing's of Voices of the West. I'm Harry Alexander. Bunker to France is here. Yep. And Todd Roberts is in Los Angeles. Hi, Todd. Hello. There's Todd. Hello. There's Hello, Todd. Todd. There's Todd. Hello, hey, this Bunker. Is a, this hello, is a Bunker special and edition. Hello, Harry. More importantly, I'm really not interested in saying hello to you. I only want to say hello to Zani. Well, Zani, and we, hello. And we, <laughs> hello, hello. And we will do that. Our guest is Zani Gorman. Uh, this is going to be a great hour. Uh, she is the daughter of the late Dr. Carl N. Gorman. And his wife, Mary. Oh, what a great artist, too. Wow. She's the youngest sister to the legendary and renowned Navajo artist, the late R.C. Gorman. Uh, Zani has appeared in a number of documentaries, including the History Channel's documentary, In Search of History, Navajo Code Talkers, the MGM double DVD release of Wind Talkers, and the PBS documentary, True Whispers. Zani earned her M.A. in History from the University of New Mexico, and her thesis... The Navajo Code Talkers of World War II, the first 29, included interviews with several of the first 29 Navajo Code Talkers, and she's now working on her Ph.D. Zani, welcome to our program. Pleasure to have you. Thank you. It's very it's, uh, wonderful to be here. Thank you very much. How uh, Obviously, your dad was, a, was one of the uh, Code Talkers, but where did your interest come in, in pursuing this? <laughs> well, you know, being the daughter of a code talker, I, I obviously grew up with the story. But sure. my, my first memories, uh, well, let me back up even further than that. Um, I'm going to give my age away here. The code talkers received their first honors in 1969. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember that because I was I had been born in 1963. And I was still pretty young at that point and didn't really know what was happening. It wasn't until the early 70s that I started to become aware that my dad was somebody. Uh, (laughs) And so the Navajo Code Talkers Association started in the early 1970s, 1973. And, you know, as a young kid, eight, nine, ten years old, um, I... I, I grew up as an only child because my, my brother, R.C., and my sister, Donna, they were from my dad's first marriage. And so they were way older than me and had already moved away. Mm-hmm. And my brother, my real brother, um, that was older than me by five years, had died in a car accident. So I grew up as an only child. So anybody out there who, you know, grew up as an only child, you can relate to this. You get dragged to everything your parents go to. <laughs> and yes, yes. I used to get <laughs> yeah. I used to I used to get dragged to code talker meetings. And, you know, as a young kid, uh, they were a bunch of old guys that, you know, like my dad would get together and, and shoot the breeze and talk about something I had no idea. And they used to they used to meet at the Navajo Tribal Museum, uh, in Winter Rock and they had a little tiny zoo in the back back of this museum that had, you know, like a badger and a, and a deer and, you know, local southwestern kind of animals. And in the middle of the zoo, there was a, a slide. And, you know, our, myself and sometimes there would be some other kids that would be there. Um, and we would just, you know, play out in the zoo while my parents 
would go to these code talker meetings. So that was my first exposure to to the code talkers. But obviously, you know, growing up in someone who loved history, you know, I just listened to the adults as they talked. And I learned about more and more about who my dad was as a code talker. Well, let me ask you this, because I know, you know, I grew up in Rio Doce over in southern New Mexico, and I was around the Mescalero all the time. But, you know, if you're in New Mexico, you're, you're getting filled with Navajo history all the time, the good and the bad. And one of the things that was always so interesting to me was the fact that of all the people who probably fought in World War II, they carried their secret with them longer than anybody else uh, without revealing it. Now, I know from what I've talked to uh, Navajo friends that uh, they'd say, oh, my dad, he never talked about it. He wouldn't talk about it. And then after he could, he still wouldn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that was true. Um yeah, it was it was classified and uh, was not declassified until 1968, and and even up until you know these men are are you know are in their 80s and 90s, which they are now. Um, there there's a lot of families that have come forward and said, you know, I didn't know my dad or my grandpa was a code talker because he never talked about it. Uh, and I remember when I was younger, going to different events um, where there were. Marines, you know, they would have high-ranking Marines at some of the events. So we'd go to Washington, D.C., and we'd have the Commandant come speak to them. And I remember once in the late 70s, when I was a teenager, um, we were in D.C., and the Commandant of the Marine Corps, I don't remember which one it was at that point, but he made a speech to the toe talkers, and he told them, he said, you know, it's okay, you guys can talk about it now. And, and I remember conversations after that where the code talkers were like, well, yeah, the commandant says we can talk about it, but I, I gave my word that I wouldn't talk about it back back in the day, right. so I'm not going to talk about it. So some of them just wouldn't talk about it. Yeah. Is that a culture thing? Or um, I, think they were being, I think they were just being good Marines. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you know, one Marine always knew. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. and, and the thing, too, is, you know, it's a... It, 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 and it's it's uh, throughout all of the Indian nations is that you know silence is kind of a golden thing. You listen, you don't right. talk, right? And that's how you know that's how the uh, legends, that's how the history, that's how you know ceremonial stuff is passed down. It's it's not really by asking questions; it's by listening and someone saying, "Granddaughter, I want to I want to teach you something." Right. Zani, can you go over the, the, the process of how these uh, 29 men were chosen uh, for this mission? Yeah, sure. Um, first of all, the, the first 29 were the men who were recruited as the pilot for the entire program in 1942. Uh-huh. So the documentation that is out there that can be found, um, it, the, the earliest documentation is from the mid uh, mid-February 1942. And it indicates that there were some conversations happening between the Marine Corps and a gentleman by the name of Philip Johnston. Now, Philip Johnston was uh, a white man who was the son of a missionary, and he had grown up 
um, on the Navajo Nation, uh, off and on. Um, his father and mother had come out to the reservation in, in, around the turn of the century, about 1895, 1897, and they established a mission on the Arizona side of the reservation. So he went to school and played with the kids you know, on the reservation, they would send him to Flagstaff and other places to go to school off and on. So, but he did spend a, a tremendous amount of time on the reservation. Uh, so he learned, you know, he picked up enough Navajo that he could, you know, talk, talk Navajo uh, conversationally. By, by the time he was in his mid-50s, he, he was a, an army veteran at World War One. He was living in Los Angeles and um, the way the story goes is he had this idea and he presented it to the Marine Corps to use Navajo and the rest is history, right? <laughs> well, that, that's a good story, but um, it's a little more complicated than that. Right. The idea of using Native Americans actually goes back to World War I and mm -hmm. probably even earlier. We just don't have documentation of it. But there is documentation that the U.S. Army used Native people in World War I as communicators. Um, so the idea was already out there. And the other thing on the reservation itself, and not just the Navajo reservation, but many reservations across the country, a lot of the employees for the Bureau of Indian Affairs, they had ties to the military. They were either former military folks or, or spouses of military folks. Um, because this, this relationship uh, between military installations, you know, going back to the 1890s when Indians were being moved on reservations, uh, you know, the military forts that they were built around, uh, the first Indian schools, Carlisle Indian School was a military installation initially. A lot of the teachers that taught at these early schools were military. So that tradition continued into the 30s and 40s. And a lot of people don't realize that. But with that said, what was happening is, you know, that 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 uh, group of people in the schools that was working for the bureau already had their ears to the ground and were knowledgeable of the fact that Indian people had been used before. And of course, they're living among the Indian people, and it just seems logical that you would use somebody's language that that you know the enemy doesn't understand, right? So, so there was a lot of talk, and there are documents that have come to light on the Navajo Nation dating back to the mid and, and late 1930s, where they're already talking about, see, this is a great idea, why doesn't the U.S. government just use Navajos as communicators? You know, they're trained in shortwave radios, uh, you know, a lot of um, men who worked for the federal government at that time, Navajo men, had to learn how to use shortwave radios, and they're bilingual, and you know, so the talk was already there. It was common talk. Well, you know, the, the interesting thing is, like, in World War One, as you mentioned, the Choctaw, the uh, who else was it? Cherokee, the Comanche, uh, they they were all used, and then afterwards, in the interim between World War One and World War Two, the Germans sent. Uh, supposed scholars over and the Japanese as well to study the Indian languages, you know, for for ethnological sure, purposes, course, obviously. Yeah, right. But uh, and they tried to do the same with the Navajo, and they had no success. And I want to read this one thing here because it it really 
it shows you how important the Navajo language was to the world. In Navajo, each syllable carries meaning and must be spoken perfectly. The slightest mistake in pronunciation or tone can change the entire meaning of a word. This makes Navajo one of the hardest languages to understand and speak. The Navajo language even confuses other American Indian tribes. That's interesting. <laughs> it, it, is, it a, uh, is it a written language or only a spoken language? Well, now it's both. Well, well, yeah, now it's both, but I mean, yeah. well, at the time... No. Uh, yeah, at the time. Okay. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I get what you're getting at. Um, and I'm laughing because, you know, as a historian, I, I'm, I'm seeing, I'm looking at it differently from where the perspective that most people look at the story. So before I answer the question, you know, the thing about the Coach Hawker story is it, it's, become, uh, it's become part of the popular American narrative about World War II. Mm-hmm. And, and these men have been placed on pedestals. They've become icons, right, of, of Native American patriotism. And with that has come this, this notion uh, that, well, the, the telling of their story kind of becomes watered down or very, very, you know, the popular story. You know, it's like George Washington cutting down the cherry tree, right? Yeah, yeah. You get these myths that are right. built around the story. So hopefully today you'll allow me to kind of uh, dispel some of these these myths. That's what we want. That's why you're here. Okay. <laughs> Myth number okay. one. Let's, John, let's start. Zani, <laughs> yeah. can I ask one question? And I relate this only because of my time uh, on the Navajo Reservation that when I heard the first heard about Code Talkers and continued to hear about them throughout my journey of... Uh, you know, uh, in in and amongst the American Indian in this country, uh, th- with my parents, and we met people on the way and so on, especially a lot of Navajos that were artists and so forth. And and one of the stories that was told to me, and I would love you to address it or dispel it or whatever, is that a lot of the Navajos that were first contacted and then subsequently contacted for the Marine Corps to be code talkers, at first really didn't believe. They thought it was a trick because for so long in their youth, going to government school, they were told not they were not allowed to speak their native language. And here now the government was coming back to them saying, oh no, it's okay to speak your native language. We need you to serve your country by speaking your native language. And a lot of them resisted that the whole idea or concept of this in in some ways uh, obviously a different varying degrees so if you could address that okay yeah um okay so there's two questions on the table let me go back to the first one first and then i'll come back to yours um pod okay and because they are related they are related okay so the first question was about about the language and the, you know, the Navajo language traditionally is not a written language was it written at the time in world war ii uh, when these men went service. So, yes, first of all, the Navajo language traditionally is not a written language. It's a spoken language, and so, you know, it's learned in an oral tradition, in an oral fashion. By the 1930s, however, the federal government itself, not the Navajo people, but the federal government, 
decided that they were going to develop a, a, um, a, a written form of Navajo. And the reason for it was because they, they felt that, you know, still the goal was to teach Indian people, you know, English uh, and, and to, trans to, to transfer directly over to English and to assimilate. Um, so the idea of, of, of developing a written form of Navajo was not necessarily to preserve the language, but actually to eradicate the language. Mm -hmm. Because the idea of English as a second language at that time was let's teach you know young children who are coming into the school rather than making them you know throwing them into a world where they just have to speak English with no no transition period um, was was at that point beginning to seem like a harsh way to do it which obviously it was so the idea was to start teaching Navajos to read and write in their own language as a transition, a, a transitional bridge to English, okay? So, by the, the late 1930s, the federal government had developed a, a written form of Navajo, and it was being introduced into the boarding schools in the 1938-39. Um, by 1942, the, the federal government, um, under the auspices of um, man by the name of um, Robert Young, who was a linguist, uh, started to produce a, a newspaper in Navajo. Now, not many Navajos could read it at that point, but but this is just to point out that Navajo was written. There were people who could read and write in Navajo. Not a whole lot, but there were. So. The funny thing is, uh, ironic thing, is when Philip Johnson presented the idea to the Marine Corps, one of the, the, the things that he sold the Marine Corps on was the fact that Navajo was an unwritten language, <laughs> which wasn't necessarily true, right, at that point in the 1940s. So um, that, that's, that's something in the popular narrative that is not true. You know, people, oh, it was an unwritten language and it was, you know, highly complex and blah, blah, blah. Um, it's highly complex if you're not familiar with polysynthetic languages. And I can explain a little bit about, you know, how the Navajo language varies from English. Um, Let's do that. Uh, we got to do our first break and then we're going to uh, talk about that. Fascinating. This is, I'm, this is great. <laughs> Thank you, Todd, for uh, finding Zani and... and Zani, thank you for joining us. Uh, quite quite sure. a pleasure. You are listening to Emil Franzi's Voices of the West, Harry Alexander, Bunker de France, and Todd Roberts. Our guest is Zani Gorman. We'll be back with much more right after these important messages. Arizona, the land of cattle, copper, and cowboys. It's also the true West, where a large number of Westerns were filmed. For your next vacation, come out to where Wyatt Earp made a name for himself as a highly respected sheriff. Stay where Jimmy Stewart filmed Winchester 73. That would be the White Stallion Ranch. Situated in the mountains just northwest of Tucson, the White Stallion Ranch is an award-winning dude ranch with 43 guest rooms and the Hacienda, 
That's a five-bedroom, three-bathroom home, perfect for larger families, family reunions, and girlfriend getaways. Every guest room has a private patio with views of the cactus gardens, mountains, or corrals. Generous floor plans offer sunny, comfortable rooms, but you won't want to stay in your room. Outdoor activities are plentiful at the White Stallion Ranch. Horseback riding, hiking, shooting, archery, rock climbing, e-biking, and a weekly ranch rodeo are among the numerous activities that you'll enjoy on your ranch vacation. Go Western for your next getaway. The White Stallion Ranch. Book your vacation now online at whitestallionranch.com or call 520-297-0252. Imus Wilkinson Investments, 777-1911, is a unique investment management firm. They pay little attention to where the market indicators are because smart investment management goes way beyond checking stock exchanges. They are very good at managing all types of investment based on client expectations. They build relationships, and they want clients, not customers. My family is proudly included among them, and they'll help you, as they did us, design a portfolio that achieves what you want when you need it. Imus Wilkinson Investments, they're really good at what they do. 777-1911. America, let me tell you about Sergeant Greg Anderson. Served two tours in Afghanistan, Bronze Star and Purple Heart recipient, and unemployed. The unemployment rate among transitioning service members is unacceptably high, much higher than the general population. Veterans are a proven commodity. They're mature, reliable, and hardworking. They deserve a chance to get back to work after serving their country. Do you really want to honor a veteran? Hire one. Go to legion.org slash honor veterans to find out how you can help. Watch classic Western movies anytime at voicesofthewest.net. Heading up that Arizona trail. That's good code talking music. <laughs> Welcome back to Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. Harry Alexander. Bucket of France, Todd Roberts. Our guest is Zani Gorman. She's the daughter of the late Dr. Carl N. Gorman, uh, who was a Navajo code talker. Now, before the break, we were going to go, uh, we were talking about how the, or the similarities and differences uh, between the Navajo language and the English language. Zani, go ahead. Well, um, yeah, I was talking about the fact that, that it was a written language, technically, uh, by the time World War II started. Uh, and I want to jump over real quick to uh, Todd's question, um, and then I'll, I'll come back uh, sure. around. Sure. So Todd earlier had asked or had made the comment, you know, that that uh, he'd heard of a lot of Navajo code talkers saying that, you know, they that at the time in World War II, a lot of them were not so sure about, you know being recruited into the Marine Corps because of the irony of, of, of you know, a country that, that was washing their mouths out with soap or, or chaining them in the basement or making them wear dresses to demoralize them for speaking their language was now asking them to speak their language and use their language to help win the war in the Pacific. And, and yeah, there's some truth to that. Um, Many of, of these men at the time were were young, you know, they were young uh, young men. They were 17, 18-year-old kids. Uh, some of them were older, like my father. And at the time, 
some of them, I think, made that connection, the, the irony of it. Uh, I haven't heard specifically of any of them that didn't want to be recruited because of that. I think some of those kinds of stories have developed over time post-World War II, especially as the Code Talker story, again, has become part of American popular narrative. You know, these men now are thinking about uh, themselves as indigenous people in a, in a country um, that has a long history um, of issues where, you know, there were tensions. Um, so, you know, I mean, with the men that I've talked to at the time when I ask them, you know, if you think about these things, <laughs> sometimes they'll just kind of joke about it and say, yeah, you know, we were kids, you know, we wanted to, we wanted, we wanted to get away, you know, it was an adventure. Um, uh, you know, they stirred up our patriotism and so we wanted to go. Those kinds of comments. So I think this idea of, of, of them thinking about it in other terms, which, you know, is sadly very true, um, could came I, later when they were thinking about what happened to them. Could I interject a little sidebar here? Uh, sure. According, I was looking at the CIA site that was dealing with the code talker history, and one of the things that jumped out at me is they were, they were commenting on the fact that when they went to the reservation uh, to recruit, they were concerned, they were, they were afraid that because of the situation that Todd had mentioned, that they wouldn't get any uh, volunteers. Well, when they had their first uh, so-called casting call, there was a couple of hundred Nav young Navajo men showed up ready and willing to go to war. And, and I think that plays into the thing that doesn't get talked about. You know, I've gone to powwows, I'm a veteran, and the honor and the, and the prestige of being a, a Native American veteran, uh, that, that ranks up their way at the top. And I think, you know, the, it's not a warrior mentality like, like in the white world. It's a different kind of warrior mentality. It's protecting your, uh, your mother country, its family, and, it, and its honor. Yes. Yes, Harry, I, I totally agree with you. Um, uh, the idea of, of, of warriorship, as you say, is, is a different kind of concept among indigenous people than it is, I think, in American society. Mm -hmm. You know, it is about family. It's about protecting land and home and family and community. You know, community is extremely important. Extended relations are extremely important in Indian communities. So, again, I, I don't think that they saw... Um, and they saw it in different terms. And, and you mentioned, you know, that they were surprised that so many natives showed up. <laughs> yeah. That's very true. That's very true. Um, in fact, if you, if you would, I, I'd like to share a story with you. Um, I, back in the late 1980s, when I was an undergrad at the University of Arizona, I uh, had the fortunate um, opportunity to interview a gentleman by the name of Frank Shin, who had recruited uh, the first couple of groups of code talkers, including that very first group, the first 29 that my father was with. And so he related the story actually of remembering recruiting my dad, which uh, I don't know how true it is, but you know, I think stories get tall, taller the, the farther away you get from what happened. But I'll share the story with you, Winnie, because it's a great story. Please. So 
So him and my father got together many years later, um, and, and I, like I said, I got to interview him. And so his story of recruitment was uh, he was working um, in San Francisco, and he was a recruiting officer. He was in his second tour of duty. He had served in China before that. And he was toward the end of his second tour of duty as a recruiter. So he was a seasoned recruiting officer at that point. And uh, so he um, wanted to get a promotion, and he'd been trying to get a promotion, and he kept getting turned down. And he said one day his, his commanding officer called him into the office and uh, told him, we've got these new mobile recruiting units, and basically you're going to go out and you know recruit. These mobile recruiting units were new um, because prior to World War II, if you wanted to join the military, you had to go to a recruiting station. They didn't come to you. So he wasn't too keen on having to travel, he said, but um, they, they, they put the stipulation on if he wanted his promotion that, that, he could, that he would get that if he did this. So, so he said his first assignment was actually to go to the Navajo Reservation and recruit you know, a bunch of Navajos. Um, so him and um, his partner um, came out and they, they came into Phoenix first because that's where the regional office was for the Marine Corps for the recruiting station. And they did some recruiting around Southern Arizona. And by the third week of April, they came up to the Navajo Nation and they came into the community of Fort Defiance. And there was a brand new hospital that had just been built um, like in 1937, 1938. And he said there was a big field right outside this hospital, and the, the trading post was just kind of like to the side of the, the, the hospital. Um, so that was kind of the, the hub of this little space, this little community. So they set up this 30-foot trailer that they, they were following with them um, for recruitment. And they used to have um, uh, some kind of mute, uh, sound system. And he said we had these big... Uh, speakers and, and we would put them up on top of the, the trailer and we would play martial music like you know under the double eagle um, you know music that's very patriotic <laughs> and it, when we were traveling through southern Arizona and we did that it you know people got stirred up and they would come over and you know try to see what was happening of course they were all dressed in their dress blues and and so it drew people to them. Well, he said that didn't happen on the Navajo reservation. He said there was a lot of people, you know, wagons were coming in and out and people on horseback and on foot and coming into the trading post, coming into the hospital. But he said people would just kind of look at them <laughs> and just keep, keep going. And he said that happened for about three days. And so finally he went over to the trading post. He was a smoker at the time and he went over to get some you know, cigarettes. And uh, so he started the conversation with the young Navajo clerk there at the trading post. And, and he asked him, you know, why, why isn't anybody signing up for the Marine Corps? And he said that the clerk told him that there was a mandate that Navajos weren't supposed to talk to any white people coming on the reservation without permission from the tribal council. Now, as a historian, I've never seen any indication, you know, of that um, documented. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't know whether it was just kind of a spoken um, rule or, or, or whether, you know, that's just what he thinks he remembers hearing. I, I don't know for sure. But 
So his next question was, well, what do I do? You know, who do I talk to to get permission? So the young man told him he needed to talk to Chi Dodge, who was the chairman at the time. Uh, so he he and his partner that late afternoon um, went to visit Chi Dodge and spent a great deal of time talking to him, and they explained to him what the Marine Corps was going to do. And so Chi Dodge finally said, okay, he says, I'll get the word out. He says, you'll get people come in, but I'll get the word out for you. Well, getting the word out at that time was doing it through um, shortwave radios. So they, a lot of the trading posts that were uh, scattered across the reservation had shortwave radios. Uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs offices that were very few and far between had shortwave radios. So anytime there was word that needed to get out, that's how they communicated. So... Um, so Frank Shin and his partner, the two recruiters, they went back to their trailer and he said, we talked about it and we decided, you know, we're out here in the middle of nowhere <laughs> and, and, you know, there's no cars. People are going by horseback and wagon. It's going to take some time for people to get the word and come in. So they decided to sleep in that next morning. And so the next morning... He said he, he woke up to to this muffled noises outside the trailer, right, you know, early, early in the morning. And uh, he said it just wasn't going away. So he finally got up and he peeked out of the little window, I guess, they had in the trailer there. And he said that he saw one of the most patriotic sights he had ever seen in his life. It was so moving to him. He said standing out in that field was a lot of Navajo men. <laughs> <laughs> very quietly and patiently waiting for them to open their doors. And he said, you know, he said it was right at the crack of dawn, you know, that the, the sun was just coming up and he could, you know, barely see what these men look like. But he said he could tell that many of them were, had their own rifles. They brought their own rifles. Um, there were young boys. There were old, old men that were obviously too old to join. Um, and he said that he noticed in between, kind of scattered in this crowd, there were men who were dressed in these blue uniforms. And he said, when I realized what those uniforms were, it just, it was so, you know, it moved him. He said they were all older men that had on these uniforms. And so he assumed that they were men who had served as scouts, right, with the U.S. Army uh, in their younger days and, and were as older men still held on to these uniforms and, you know, could still fit in them. <laughs> and <laughs> That's a, a real John Ford moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so for him as a recruiter, you know, the United States Marine Corps, um, that was a very touching, patriotic image sure. for him. Wow. Um, and, and my father, I don't think, was in that crowd that morning because um, he, he was way doing a job far, far uh, up around the Cayenta area, Black Mountain um, area. Um, and, and he said he came in a couple of days later. But, yeah, so it, it's interesting, some of these stories that are out there. Are, are, you, oh, hang on, are, are you familiar with well, uh, General... Hang, 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 hang on. Break time? We've we got to do a break. Oh, yes, break. Over, over, I'm sorry, but, you know, they pay the bills. I'll be the last of that. <laughs> They pay the bills. This is Abel Franzi's Voices of the West. Harry Alexander, Bunker to France, Todd Roberts, our guest. 
Zani Gorman. We're talking about Navajo Code Talkers, which we'll do right after the, continue doing right after these messages. When looking for a property management company, here are some things you should consider. How long has the company been in business? What types of properties can they manage for you? And does the company give back to the community? Well, your search is over. The Polash Management Company meets and exceeds those considerations. They've been in business in Tucson, Arizona since the 1960s. They manage all types of properties throughout Arizona and elsewhere, from residential to commercial to public sector properties. The Polash Management Company also dedicates its time and resources to numerous community projects, including help funding the drive for the USS Arizona Memorial at the University of Arizona. You also want a property management company that puts you, the customer, First, contact the Paul Ash Management Company today at paulashmanagement.com and ask about the complete package or call 520-795-2100. That's 520-795-2100. The Paul Ash Management Company, property managers you can trust. Can you even imagine switching back to pen and paper to run your business? Every year we become more and more dependent upon our technology. If your network is not set up properly, you're just one click or one email away from losing data critical to your operation. Arizona Computer Guru offers a host of services to prevent and protect you from disaster. From online backup services to email filtering to fully managed network services, Arizona Computer Guru is here to keep your network secure, your data safe, and your budget in the black. To schedule your free consultation, call 304-8300. With the fall and the coming of cooler weather, Tucson Trap and Skeet now institutes our fall hours. Office hours are Wednesday through Sunday from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. And automated fields are open daily from 7 a.m. until dusk. So come out and shoot from one of our 50 trap fields, 13 skeet fields, or five international bunkers. Visit TucsonTrapAndSkeet.com for all of our upcoming events or call 883-6426. Hi, everyone. This is Susan McRae. Welcome to Chaparral Roundup. High Chaparral debuted back in 67 and lasted until 71. March 12th through the 14th in Tucson, Arizona, I'll be hosting Chaparral Roundup, a get-together with fans, friends, and special guests featuring confessions of an acting cowboy, highlights of the life and career of Don Collier, who was Sam Butler on the show, lunch at the White Stallion Ranch, the location where we shot several episodes of the High Chaparral, with music, a Western show, a question and answer panel with special guests, the great Western band, Fort Worth West, and so much more. The registration form with all information is on the website, chaparralroundup.com, or on the Facebook page, Chaparral Roundup, March 12th through the 14th, 2021, in Tucson, Arizona. Great fun with great people. Chaparral Roundup. You don't want to miss it. Hey, this is Robert Fuller, uh, Jess Harper from Laramie, and we're listening to the Voices of the West. This is the Voices of the West. We're back on Emil Francis of Voices of the West. Harry Alexander, Bunker de France, and John Roberts, our guest, Zani Gorman. And uh, we're talking about Navajo Code Talkers and uh, yes, we play the theme to the High Chaparral, Zani, because Mr. DeFrance here was in 52 of those things, and so he walks if I don't play it. I was I was never a Navajo in that one, but I was an Apache many, many times. All right. What are some of the other myths uh, surrounding the Navajo Code Talkers? 
Well, that kind of brings us around to the code itself. Um, when you read about the code talkers, hear stories about the code talkers, and especially the code, the, the kind of common way of expressing it is, oh, you know, they, they use their, they didn't have words in their language for certain words, so they substituted words. And that's true, they did, but that's only the tip of the iceberg of what the code did. Yeah. Uh, they also developed an, an alphabet. Um, so those two things are, are the, the easiest and most simple way that the code is explained. Um, and it's kind of left at that. <laughs> so it kind of gives you the impression that that's it. That's how, that's how it was used. Yo, would, you, so, would you kind of, because uh, the, the alphabet thing in itself was interesting because instead of just doing something for A, B, they had like three A's, three B's, three C's. So that they, they made, with it, that was their own innovation, they made the code even more complex. Right, yes, that's very true. So, yeah, so I'd like to kind of walk you through a couple of things. I'm, I'm going to do, uh, do three things. So, first of all, um, number one, they did substitute. Number two, I will talk a little bit about how they did the uh, code, or the alphabet, excuse me. And then number three, I'm going to introduce you to something that is in the code that most people are not even aware of, and it has to do with how the language works. So let me back up to number one. Number one, substitution. Yes, um, they did substitute a number of words with Navajo words to stand in for the word that they were substituting, obviously. So one of the most simplest explanations here would be to look at the words they came up with for airplanes. Mm, yes, I got a list. Okay. So, obviously, there's more than one kind of airplane in the military, right? Yeah. <laughs> An airplane is just an airplane. You've got transport planes. You've got uh, fighter planes. You know, you've got bombers. Uh, so, there's all these different kinds of planes that do different kinds of tasks. So, what they did is they did something obviously very simple. They looked at the, the plane, and of course, it reminded them of what? What the word they were most familiar with from home were, anybody can pick yes? Bird. There you go. Yeah, exactly. So they made that connection. And so what they did is they looked at the airplanes and, and what their function was, what they did. And then they, they um, paired them up with birds that they were familiar with that, that had a very similar function. Similar characteristics. So um, uh, an observation plane. An observation plane goes out, it flies low, it, it kind of checks things out, right? It's very slow moving. Uh, and so they, they equated that to an owl or nezja in Navajo. Um, what else? I don't have a list in front Well, of I've got a list here. I'll, why don't I just <laughs> give you the plane and you, you give us the name. Dive bomber. <laughs> Okay, well, um, that's, that's, uh, I'm looking, looking behind you to see what happened. <laughs> oh, I, I torpedoed you there. <laughs> yeah, so, so what did you say? Oh, well, uh, dive bomber. A, and a it dive makes, bomber. Makes so um, much sense. Ginnin? I think that was a chicken hawk? Yes. And it makes <laughs> sense no. that what they do. Yeah. Torpedo plane. Yeah. 
torpedo plane. Um, I don't remember that one off the top of my head. Well, I'll give it to you so we don't. It's a swallow, and you can see you can see how the swallows skip the water, you know, and, and snatch up. Yeah, exactly. uh, or like uh, I saw them as a hummingbird. Yeah, that's a good one. Right. Yeah. This is my this is my favorite, the bomber. The bomber. Um. Bomber. I'm trying to think what that was. The uh uh uh. uh think it's a, a fellow that flies real high, way up in the sky, and just kind of lazy. Was that the eagle? Yeah. No, that, that's transport. Was eagle. Oh, transport. It's okay. a buzzard. <laughs> I said, I, I don't know the code. I, I didn't have to use this out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, I'll make it simple. It was buzzard, okay. which makes it. it and then patrol plane was crow, which is, you know, again, that's what crows do. They they hop around and, scout. and look at stuff. So what might a typical sentence look like or sound like, radio, uh, sound like in, in the using the code? So, for example, we've got... Uh, we'll we'll make up something here that we've got. Uh, oh, one here. All right, I was gonna say we've got B twenty B twenty nine bombers heading to <laughs> Saipan. You know, I don't know. Oh, Harry! Well, not my war. <laughs> this is this is where it becomes complicated because um, a lot of this also has to do with the language itself. Yeah. So okay. <laughs> um, Many of these men didn't explain the details of how they did it. They had certain words that were coded, but they would also utilize regular Navajo. Um, so, so I was just talking about um, you know substituting words and using the 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 the, the, the example of the of the airplanes. Right. You want to so know my let favorite? Me, you want to know my favorite? Anti tank gun. Turtle, gun? turtle killer. Isn't that not so neat? I mean, yeah, it makes total sense. Hey, yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you can see that the substitution and how, you know, how they, they made these connections. Um, and you see that throughout the code. Um, so let me leave, let me leave the alphabet. Well, no, no I, I need to explain the alphabet first. So let's go to number two, the alphabet. Yeah. So let's talk about that. And, and when we get to the end of this, my next one, then hopefully, you know, we can, it'll, it'll make more sense when we actually talk about how they put the code together. Okay. So number two, the alphabet, what they did is they, they, it, it was based basically on what, um, what was used in the military already, right? You're familiar with Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, mm -hmm. Delta. Mm -hmm. And what they're doing is they're choosing words that start with a letter that it represents. Well, they did the same thing in Navajo or, or in developing their code, but what they did was slightly different. They double-coded it. So mm -hmm. what they did is the words that they chose in English started with a letter that it was going to represent. But then they would say it in Navajo that didn't start with the letter that it that it represented, right? So, for example, and this is the first group. The first group came up with one word for each letter of the alphabet. And as you mentioned, and I'm going to mention again, they added more terms. But let's start with the first group. So, they came up with A, apple, B, bear, C, cat, D, dog and so forth okay uh -huh. so you can yeah. see that 
the English word was, was what they used. So in Navajo, however, it was um, apple is the lasana, um, bear is shush, cat is musa, d dog is plechain. So, you know, you can see there it's very, very different, right, from the English word. And so this, the, having the alphabet made it very um, flexible, the code, because now all of a sudden, if they didn't have a code word for something, they could spell it out, right? Hmm, interesting. But this also leads to another thing that they did, which really is a little-known secret that I'm going to give away here. And I call it compounding. You know, when we think of the English words, um, ant kill, right? It's two words, ant and kill. That's a compound word where we put two words together that means something else. They did this in Navajo, too. So the best and easiest sample I can give you is actually a word that you will not find in the actual code. And that's because there were words that they came up with that didn't that didn't show up in the, the formal code, but they used them anyway. And that's the word kill. H-I-L-L. So what they did is they looked at words in English and they said, aha, there's a word inside a word. You look at the word hill, you've got the letter H and then the English word ill or sick, right? So what they did is they took the word for um, H that they developed in the Navajo alphabetical code, which was horse, and then they took the Navajo plain text word for ill or sick, and that is Yaka, and then they put them together. So H, ill, became horse, sick, or think Yaka. So that was a compound um, word that they developed in Navajo. I can't and even do that in English. <laughs> <laughs> we got to we got to do our last break at, uh, here, and then when we come back, Zani, uh, uh, we'll, we'll finish up with uh, what we need to finish up with on, uh, on that. This is Emil Franzi's <laughs> Voices of the West. I know I'm, I'm just so thrilled with Harry this. is just he's just this he's in his glory. He's sitting here glowing like a <laughs> like an uh, ember in a we'll fire. We'll be back. Arizona, the land of cattle, copper, and cowboys. It's also the true West, where a large number of westerns were filmed. For your next vacation, come out to where Wyatt Earp made a name for himself as a highly respected sheriff. Stay where Jimmy Stewart filmed Winchester 73. That would be the White Stallion Ranch. Situated in the mountains just northwest of Tucson, the White Stallion Ranch is an award-winning dude ranch with 43 guest rooms and a hacienda. That's a five-bedroom, three-bathroom home, perfect for larger families, family reunions, and girlfriend getaways. Every guest room has a private patio with views of the cactus gardens, mountains, or corrals. Generous floor plans offer sunny, comfortable rooms, but you won't want to stay in your room. Outdoor activities are plentiful at the White Stallion Ranch. Horseback riding, hiking, shooting, archery, rock climbing, e-biking, and a weekly ranch rodeo are among the numerous activities that you'll enjoy on your ranch vacation. Go Western for your next getaway. The White Stallion Ranch. Book your vacation now online at whitestallionranch.com or call 520-297-0252. 
Imus Wilkinson Investments, 777-1911, is a unique investment management firm. They pay little attention to where the market indicators are because smart investment management goes way beyond check and stock exchanges. They are very good at managing all types of investment based on client expectations. They build relationships, and they want clients, not customers. My family is proudly included among them, and they'll help you, as they did us, design a portfolio that achieves what you want when you need it. Imus Wilkinson Investments, they're really good at what they do. 777-1911. Hi, this is Craig Morgan with a special message for all those who have served in the U.S. Army. The National Museum of the United States Army, to be built at Fort Belvoir, Virginia, will include the Soldier's Registry, an electronic record of Americans who have worn the Army uniform, recognizing their service. I've already added my story to the registry. I hope you'll add yours. To learn more and to make your story a permanent part of the National Army Museum, visit armyhistory.org. Read classic Western comics anytime at voicesofthewest.net. Stretch of Emil Franzi's Voices of the West, Harry Alexander, Bunker de France, Todd Roberts, and our guest is Zani Gorman, a Navajo code talker. Esteemed Johnny Gorman. <laughs> his uh, historian. Zani. So smart. Dang, I love her. Yeah, this, this, is, this is great. Okay, we, uh, we needed to finish up with. Well, you know, let's kind of talk for a little bit about some of their activity. They participated in every major marine operation in the Pacific Theater. On Iwo Jima, they transmitted over 800 messages without an error. And you imagine, and this is the other thing too, which I, I found out, which I thought was interesting. The Japanese weren't very good at, they, they couldn't break the code, but they were real good about locating where radio signals were coming from. So these guys would have to get in, set up, Get their message out and get, and out. get the heck out of Dodge. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Because yeah, if they didn't, they, their foxhole would be be <laughs> And you know, I think there was like oh, was it thirteen or eighteen? Only thirteen or eighteen uh, code talkers that uh, perished in the war. Were, were code talkers used in Europe in the European theater? World no, War not, not Marine code talkers. There oh. were there were native. Tribes, including the Navajos, that were used by the U.S. Army in the in the uh, European theater, mm-hmm. but the Army had a different kind of program. Yeah. There, there's some similarities, but there are a lot of differences. Yeah, they used uh, Comanche, Hopi, and Meskwaki. Yeah, they actually used um, a, a, about 15 or 20 different tribes yeah. um, in various capacities. But yeah, again, it was very different. You know, for example, in the Army, there was uh, the Comanche code uh, talkers in World War II was really the largest number. There were 19, I believe, in, in one unit. Uh, but you know, and then there were just maybe two Miskwaki or two Zuni or whatever that were in a, a unit, and so they, you know, there were only two of them. So whether it was two or 19, that's still a very small number that that can be used in any kind of network, sure, right? Yeah. When you compare that to the Marine Corps, who had over 400 Navajo code talkers, and they utilized them in every every division of the Marine Corps, and at every level, whether it was on the ground, uh, in combat, or whether it was on shipboard, or whether it was with reconnaissance, 
you know, they very strategically place them in vital vital areas where they could communicate uh, in different ways with one another. You know, whether it was ship to shore, ground to ground in a battle, um, whether it was uh, air air reconnaissance down to you know ship or shore. So they utilized them in a very very different way. Uh, well, Johnny, what did you think about the uh, the movie Wind Talkers? It was in two thousand two. Uh, and the uh, authenticity of it. Yeah, well, no, I didn't consult on that no, film at all. They they had a, a couple of code talkers that did. Oh. Um, yeah, it was a Hollywood film. Yeah, <laughs> that, I think that's a good answer. <laughs> now you're you know, doing you're you're you're, you're, you're going to be a native I want to say is you know there's there's if you look at Hollywood films of Native Americans from you know silent films, there's a typical storyline. And often natives are not the main role, and this was this was true right up to Wind Talkers. They had to yeah. choose. Nicholas Cage. There's this idea that we as the American public somehow don't want to see a movie unless it has a big name in it, and unfortunately, native uh, actors have just not been given the opportunity to play. You know, uh, 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 what is what is the term that I'm looking for to play leading roles? Yeah. So, so then they have to they have to change the script so that it it fits around a, a white actor or a white storyline, and then the real story, which is the film covers, becomes peripheral yeah, yeah, to yeah. that, that storyline. Hey, you know, you're you're, you're going to be involved in uh, some stuff with the hit. We're running out of time yeah, here. You're going to be involved with some stuff here. with the History Channel, right? What's coming up? Uh, they just interviewed me uh, for this little uh, program that they have called Save Our History. Oh, okay. They interviewed me, and they interviewed Samuel Sandoval, who's one of the four surviving code talkers right now. Um, and they're talking about doing something bigger, but I, I really don't know what they have in mind. And I've done other things with them in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah. And they're, they they made a, a donation to, to help you know, with the archives of the material, my dad's material, and another code talker um, stuff that I, I have. Um, and his widow is still living, and, and he's very excited to be donating it to. Do, to do I do I understand that there's uh, the plans in the works for a museum? Well, there's been talk about a Navajo code talker museum for a number of years, and I I don't know what if there's anything going on right now. Um, it, it, it would be up on a reservation. You know, there was land that was donated, and then nothing happened, and um, it got political, and, and things. Yeah. I don't know. It, it's just been kind of tough. So hopefully someday there will be a museum. Yeah, when you get the politicians involved, that's when it all goes to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> Zani Garman, thank you so much for joining thank us. You, thank you. This has been a well. Very interesting. There should be a TV series yeah. about the code talk. Yeah, there should be. And, well, and, and we'd love to I, have you I'm back gonna, too. I'm going to gloat a little bit here. Um, you know, I've known Zani for 40 years. We went to school together in Verde Valley School in Arizona, and I always knew that she was a she was a very nice, sweet person at Verde Valley School. I had no <laughs> idea that she was a literally a a world class. Uh, aficionado and, and educator on this subject yeah, until and to get, recently. And to, get, and, and to get hooked up you know, with you. <laughs> a world-class well, encyclopedia yeah. is what I she mean, is. She, she has more knowledge in, in her, her 
her pinky than I have <laughs> throughout my entire life and body. Guys, we so are it's, we're it's, out of time. It's a real compliment to 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 have you on the show, Pazani. Thank you. We are. Well, thank well, you, guys. I, well, I really had a lot of lot of fun talking to you guys. Well, I'm out of time. Thank you so much. Uh, Seventy-eight. Oh. Seventy-nine. Say it with me. Adios. Thanks for listening to Emil Franzik's Voices of the West. 